This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alan Quatermain by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 18 War Red War Telling Umslopogaas to wait, I tumbled into my clothes and went off with him to Sir Henry's room, where the Zulu repeated his story word for word. It was a sight to watch Curtis's face as he heard it. "'Great heavens!' he said. "'Here have I been sleeping away while Nyleptha was nearly murdered, and all through me, too. What a fiend that Sereus must be! It would have served her well if Umslopogaas had cut her down in the act.' I said the Zulu, "'Fear not, I should have slain her ere she struck. "'I was but waiting the moment. "'I said nothing, but I could not help thinking "'that many a thousand doomed lives would have been saved "'if he had meted out to Sereus the fate she meant for her sister. "'And as the issue proved, I was right. "'After he had told his tale,' Umslopogaas went off unconcernedly to get his morning meal, and Sir Henry and I fell to talking. At first he was very bitter against Good, who, he said, was no longer to be trusted, having designedly allowed Sereus to escape by some secret stair, when it was his duty to have handed her over to justice. Indeed, he spoke in the most unmeasured terms on the matter. I let him run on a while, reflecting to myself how easy we find it to be hard on the weakness of others, and how tender we are to our own. Really, my dear fellow, I said at length, one would never think to hear you talk that you were the man who had an interview with this same lady yesterday and found it rather difficult to resist her fascinations, notwithstanding your ties to one of the loveliest and most loving women in the world. Now suppose it was Nyleptha who had tried to murder Sereus, and you had caught her, and she had pleaded with you. Would you have been so very eager to hand her over to an open shame, and to death by fire? Just look at the matter through Good's eyeglass for a minute before you denounce an old friend as a scoundrel. He listened to this jobation submissively and then frankly acknowledged that he had spoken hardly. It is one of the best points in Sir Henry's character that he is always ready to admit it when he is in the wrong. But though I spoke up thus for Good, I was not blind to the fact that, however natural his behavior might be, it was obvious that he was being involved in a very awkward and disgraceful complication. A foul and wicked murder had been attempted, and he had let the murderess escape, and thereby, among other things, allowed her to gain a complete ascendancy over himself. In fact, he was in a fair way to become her tool, and no more dreadful fate can befall a man than to become the tool of an unscrupulous woman 
or indeed of any woman. There is but one end to it. When he is broken, or has served her purpose, he is thrown away, turned out on the world to hunt for his lost self-respect. Whilst I was pondering thus, and wondering what was to be done, for the whole subject was a thorny one, I suddenly heard a great clamor in the courtyard outside, and distinguished the voice of Umslopogaas and Alphonse, the former cursing furiously, and the latter yelling in terror. Hurrying out to see what was the matter, I was met by a ludicrous sight. The little Frenchman was running up the courtyard at an extraordinary speed, and after him sped Umslopogaas like a great greyhound. Just as I came out, he caught him, and lifting him right off his legs, carried him some paces to a beautiful but very dense flowering shrub, which bore a flower not unlike the gardenia, but was covered with short thorns. Next, despite his howls and struggles, he with one mighty thrust plunged poor Alphonse headfirst into the bush, so that nothing but the calves of his legs and heels remained in evidence. Then, satisfied with what he had done, the Zulu folded his arms and stood grimly contemplating the Frenchman's kicks and listening to his yells, which were awful. "'What art thou doing?' I said, running up. "'Wouldst thou kill the man? Pull him out of the bush.' With a savage grunt he obeyed, seizing the wretched Alphonse by the ankle, and with a jerk that must have nearly dislocated it, tearing him out of the heart of the shrub. Never did I see such a sight as he presented, his clothes half torn off his back, and bleeding as he was in every direction from the sharp thorns. There he lay and yelled and rolled, and there was no getting anything out of him. At last, however, he got up, and, ensconcing himself behind me, cursed old Umslopogaas by every saint in the calendar, vowing by the blood of his heroic grandfather that he would poison him and have his revenge. At last I got to the truth of the matter. It appeared that Alphonse habitually cooked Umslopogaas's porridge, which the latter ate for breakfast in the corner of the courtyard, just as he would have done at home in Zululand, from a gourd and with a wooden spoon. Now Umslopogaas had, like many Zulus, a great horror of fish, which he considered a species of water snake. So Alphonse, who was as fond of playing tricks as a monkey, and who was also a consummate cook, determined to make him eat some. Accordingly, he grated up a quantity of white fish very finely, and mixed it with the Zulu's porridge, who swallowed it nearly all down in ignorance of what he was eating. But unfortunately for Alphonse, he could not restrain his joy at this sight, and came capering and peering around, till at last Umslopogaas, who was very clever in his way, suspected something, and after a careful examination of the remains of his porridge, discovered the buffalo heifer's trick, and in revenge served him, as I have said. Indeed, the little man was fortunate not to get a broken neck for his pains, for as one would have thought, he might have learnt from the episode of his display of axemanship 
that le monsieur noir was an ill person to play practical jokes upon this incident was unimportant enough in itself but i narrate it because it led to serious consequences as soon as he had staunched the bleeding from his scratches and washed himself alphonse went off still cursing to recover his temper a process which i knew from experience would take a very long time when he had gone i gave umslopogaas a jobation and told him that i was ashamed of his behavior ah well macumazahn he said you must be gentle with me for here is not my place i am weary of it weary to death of eating and drinking of sleeping and giving in marriage I love not this soft life in stone houses that take the heart out of a man and turn his strength to water and his flesh to fat. I love not the white robes and the delicate women, the blowing of trumpets and the flying of hawks. When we fought them aside at the kraal yonder, ah, then life was worth the living. But here is never a blow struck in anger, and I begin to think I shall go the way of my father's and lift in Kosikas no more. And he held up the axe, and gazed at it in sorrow. Ah, I said, that is thy complaint, is it? Thou hast the blood-sickness, hast thou, and the woodpecker wants a tree, and at thy age, too, shame on thee, Umslopogas. Ay, Macumazan, mine is a red trade, yet it is better and more honest than some better is it to slay a man in fair fight than to suck out his heart's blood in buying and selling and usury after your white fashion many a man have i slain yet is there never a one that i should fear to look in the face again ay many are there who once were friends and whom i should be right glad to snuff with but there, there, thou hast thy ways, and I mine, each to his own people and his own place. The high veldt ox will die in the fat bush country, and so it is with me, Macumazan. I am rough, I know it, and when my blood is warm, I know not what to do, but yet wilt thou be sorry when the night swallows me, and I am utterly lost in blackness. For in thy heart thou lovest me, my father, Macumazan the fox, though I be naught but a broken-down Zulu war-dog, a chief for whom there is no room in his own corral, an outcast and a wanderer in strange places. I, I love thee, Macumazan, for we have grown gray together, and there is that between us that cannot be seen and yet is too strong for breaking. And he took his snuff-box, which was made of an old brass cartridge, from the slit in his ear where he always carried it, and handed it to me for me to help myself. I took the pinch of snuff with some emotion. It was quite true. I was much attached to the bloodthirsty old ruffian. I do not know what was the charm of his character, but it had a charm. Perhaps it was his fierce honesty and directness. 
perhaps one admired his almost superhuman skill and strength. Or it may have been simply that he was so absolutely unique. Frankly, with all my experience of savages, I never knew a man quite like him. He was so wise, and yet such a child with it all. And though it seems laughable to say so, like the hero of the Yankee parody, he had a tender heart. Anyway, I was very fond of him, though I should never have thought of telling him so. Aye, old wolf, I said, thine is a strange love. Thou wouldst split me to the chin if I stood in thy path tomorrow. Thou speakest truth, Macumazahn. That would I if it came in the way of duty. But I should love thee all the same when the blow had gone fairly home. Is there any chance of some fighting here, Macumazahn? He went on in an insinuating voice. Methought that what I saw last night did show that the two great queens were vexed with one another. Else had the Lady of the Night not brought that dagger with her. I agreed with him that it showed that more or less pique and irritation existed between the ladies, and told him how things stood, and that they were quarreling over Incubu. Ha ha, is it so? he exclaimed, springing up in delight. Then will there be war as surely as the rivers rise in the rains? War to the end. Women love the last blow as well as the last word and when they fight for love they are pitiless as a wounded buffalo. See thou, Macumazahn, a woman will swim through blood to her desire, and think not of it. With these eyes have I seen it once, and twice also. Ah, Macumazahn, we shall see this fine place of houses burning yet, and hear the battle cries come ringing up the street. After all, I have not wandered for nothing. Can this folk fight, think ye? Just then Sir Henry joined us, and Good arrived, too, from another direction, looking very pale and hollow-eyed. The moment Umslopogaas saw the latter, he stopped his bloodthirsty talk and greeted him. Ah, Bugwan, he cried. Greeting to thee, Enkus. Thou art surely weary, didst thou hunt too much yesterday? Then, without waiting for an answer, he went on. Listen, Bugwan, and I will tell thee a story. It is about a woman. Therefore, wilt thou hear it? Is it not so? There was a man, and he had a brother. And there was a woman who loved the man's brother, and was beloved of the man. But the man's brother had a favorite wife, and loved not the woman, and he made a mock of her. Then the woman, being very cunning and fierce-hearted for revenge, took counsel with herself, and said to the man, I love thee, and if thou wilt make war upon thy brother, I will marry thee. And he knew it was a lie, yet because of his great love of the woman, who was very fair, did he listen to her words and made war. And when many people had been killed, his brother sent to him, saying, Why slayest thou me? 
what hurt have I done unto thee? From my youth up have I not loved thee. When thou wast little did I not nurture thee. And have we not gone down to war together and divided the cattle, girl by girl, ox by ox, and cow by cow? Why slayest thou me, my brother, son of my own mother? Then the man's heart was heavy, and he knew that his path was evil, and he put aside the tempting of the woman, and ceased to make war on his brother, and lived at peace in the same corral with him. And after a time the woman came to him and said, I have lost the past, I will be thy wife. And in his heart he knew that it was a lie, and that she thought the evil thing. Yet because of his love did he take her to wife. And the very night that they were wed, when the man was plunged into a deep sleep, did the woman arise and take his axe from his hand and creep into the hut of his brother and slay him in his rest. Then did she slink back like a gorged lioness and place the thong of the red axe back upon his wrist and go her ways. And at the dawning the people came shouting, Lusta is slain in the night. And they came unto the hut of the man, and there he lay asleep, and by him was the red axe. Then did they remember the war, and say, Lo, he hath of a surety slain his brother. And they would have taken and killed him, but he rose and fled swiftly, and as he fleeted by, he slew the woman. But death could not wipe out the evil she had done, and on him rested the weight of all her sin. Therefore is he an outcast, and his name a scorn among his own people, for on him and him only resteth the burden of her who betrayed. And therefore does he wander afar, without a corral, and without an ox or a wife, and therefore will he die afar like a stricken buck, and his name be accursed from generation to generation, in that the people say that he slew his brother Lusta by treachery in the night time. The old Zulu paused, and I saw that he was deeply agitated by his own story. Presently he lifted his head, which he had bowed to his breast, and went on. I was the man, Bugwan. Oh, I was that man, and now hark thou. Even as I am, so wilt thou be. A tool, a plaything, an ox of burden to carry the evil deeds of another. Listen. When thou didst creep after the lady of the night, I was hard upon thy track. When she struck thee with the knife in the sleeping place of the white queen, I was there also. When thou didst let her slip away like a snake in the stones, I saw thee. And I knew that she had bewitched thee, and that a true man had abandoned the truth. 
and he who aforetime loved a straight path had taken a crooked way. Forgive me, my father, if my words are sharp, but out of a full heart are they spoken. See her no more, so shalt thou go down with honor to the grave, else because of the beauty of a woman that weareth as a garment of fur shalt thou be even as I am, and perchance with more cause. I have said. Throughout this long and eloquent address, Good had been perfectly silent. But when the tale began to shape itself so aptly to his own case, he colored up, and when he learnt that what had passed between him and Sereus had been overseen, he was evidently much distressed. And now when at last he spoke, it was in a tone of humility quite foreign to him. I must say, he said with a bitter little laugh, that I scarcely thought that I should live to be taught my duty by a Zulu, but it just shows what we can come to. I wonder if you fellows can understand how humiliated I feel, and the bitterest part of it is that I deserve it all. Of course I should have handed Sereus over to the guard, but I could not, and that is a fact. I let her go, and I promised to say nothing. More is the shame to me. She told me that if I would side with her, she would marry me and make me king of this country. But thank goodness I did find the heart to say that even to marry her I could not desert my friends. And now you can do what you like. I deserve it all. All I have to say is that I hope that you may never love a woman with all your heart and then be so sorely tempted of her. And he turned to go. Look here, old fellow, said Sir Henry. Just stop a minute. I have a little tale to tell you, too. And he went on to narrate what had taken place on the previous day between Sereus and himself. This was a finishing stroke to poor good. It is not pleasant to any man to learn that he has been made a tool of, but when the circumstances are as peculiarly atrocious as in the present case, it is about as bitter a pill as anybody can be called on to swallow. Do you know, he said, I think that between you, you fellows have about worked a cure. And he turned and walked away and I, for one, felt very sorry for him. Ah, if the moths would always carefully avoid the candle, how few burnt wings there would be. That day was a court day, when the queens sat in the great hall and received petitions, discussed laws, money grants, and so forth, and thither we adjourned shortly afterwards. On our way we were joined by Good, who was looking exceedingly depressed. When we got into the hall, Nyleptha was already on her throne and proceeding with business as usual, surrounded by counselors, courtiers, lawyers, priests, and an unusually strong guard. 
It was, however, easy to see from the air of excitement and expectation on the faces of everybody present that nobody was paying much attention to ordinary affairs, the fact being that the knowledge that civil war was imminent had now got abroad. We saluted Nyleptha and took our accustomed places, and for a little while things went on as usual, when suddenly the trumpets began to call outside the palace, and from the great crowd that was gathered there in anticipation of some unusual event, there rose a roar of, Sereus! Sereus! Then came the roll of many chariot wheels, and presently the great curtains at the end of the hall were drawn wide, and through them entered the Lady of the Night herself. Nor did she come alone. Preceding her was Agon, the high priest, arrayed in his most gorgeous vestments, and on either side were other priests. The reason for their presence was obvious. Coming with them it would have been sacrilege to attempt to detain her. Behind her were a number of the great lords, and behind them a small body of picked guards. A glance at Sereus herself was enough to show that her mission was of no peaceful kind, for in place of her gold-embroidered calf she wore a shining tunic formed of golden scales, and on her head a little golden helmet. In her hand, too, she bore a toy spear, beautifully made, and fashioned of solid silver. Up the hall she came, looking like a lioness in her conscious pride and beauty, and as she came the spectators fell back, bowing, and made a path for her. By the sacred stone she halted, and laying her hand on it she cried out with a loud voice to Nyleptha on the throne, Hail, O Queen! All hail, my royal sister, answered Nyleptha. Draw thou near, fear not, I give thee safe conduct. Sereus answered with a haughty look, and swept on up the hall till she stood right before the thrones. A boon, O queen, she cried again. Speak on, my sister, what is there that I can give thee who hath half our kingdom? Thou canst tell me a true word, me and the people of Zuvendis. Art thou, or art thou not, about to take this foreign wolf? And she pointed to Sir Henry with her toy spear. To be a husband to thee, and share thy bed and throne. Curtis winced at this, and turning towards Sereus, said to her in a low voice, Methinks that yesterday thou hadst other names than Wolf to call me by, O Queen. And I saw her bite her lips, as like a danger flag the blood flamed red upon her face. As for Nyleptha, who is nothing if not original, she, seeing that the thing was out, and that there was nothing further to be gained by concealment, answered the question in a novel and effectual manner, inspired thereto, as I firmly believe, by coquetry and a desire to triumph over her rival. Up she rose, and descending from the throne, swept in all the glory of her royal grace on to where her lover stood. There she stopped, 
and untwined the golden snake that was wound around her arm. Then she bade him kneel, and he dropped on one knee on the marble before her. And next, taking the golden snake with both her hands, she bent the pure soft metal round his neck, and when it was fast, deliberately kissed him on the brow, and called him her dear lord. "'Thou seest,' she said, when the excited murmur of the spectators had died away, addressing her sister as Sir Henry rose to his feet. "'I have put my collar round the wolf's neck, and behold he shall be my watchdog, and that is my answer to thee, Queen Sirius, my sister, and to those with thee. Fear not,' she went on, smiling sweetly on her lover, and pointing to the golden snake she had twined round his massive throat, if my yoke be heavy, yet it is a pure gold, and it shall not gall thee. Then, turning to the audience, she continued in a clear, proud tone, I, lady of the night, lords, priests, and people here gathered together, by this sign do I take the foreigner to husband, even here in the face of you all. What, am I a queen? and yet not free to choose the man whom I will love? Then should I be lower than the meanest girl in all my provinces. Nay, he hath won my heart, and with it goes my hand, and throne, and all I have. I had he been a beggar instead of a great lord, fairer and stronger than any here, and having more wisdom and knowledge of strange things, I had given him all, how much more so being what he is. And she took his hand and gazed proudly on him, and holding it stood there boldly facing the people. And such was her sweetness and the power and dignity of her person, and so beautiful she looked standing hand in hand there at her lover's side, so sure of him and of herself and so ready to risk all things, and endure all things for him, that most of those who saw the sight, which I am sure no one of them will ever forget, caught the fire from her eyes, and the happy color from her blushing face, and cheered her like wild things. It was a bold stroke for her to make, and it appealed to the imagination. But human nature in Zuvendis as elsewhere, loves that which is bold, and not afraid to break a rule, and is moreover peculiarly susceptible to appeals to its poetical side. And so the people cheered till the roof rang, but Sirius of the night stood there with downcast eyes, for she could not bear to see her sister's triumph which robbed her of the man whom she had hoped to win, and in the awfulness of her jealous anger she trembled and turned white like an aspen in the wind. I think I have said somewhere of her that she reminded me of the sea on a calm day, having the same aspect of sleeping power about her. Well, it was all awake now, and like the face of the furious ocean, it awed and yet fascinated me. A really handsome woman in a royal rage 
is always a beautiful sight. But such beauty and such a rage I never saw combined before, and I can only say that the effect produced was well worthy of the two. She lifted her white face, the teeth set, and there were purple rings beneath her glowing eyes. Thrice she tried to speak, and thrice she failed. But at last her voice came. Raising her silver spear, she shook it, and the light gleamed from it, and from the golden scales of her cuirass. And thinkest thou, Nyleptha, she said in notes which pealed through the great hall like a clarion, thinkest thou that I, Sereus, a queen of the Zuvendi, will brook that this base outlander shall sit upon my father's throne and rear up half-breeds to fill the place of the great house of the stairway. Never, never, while there is life in my bosom and a man to follow me and a spear to strike with. Who is on my side? Who? Now hand thou over this foreign wolf, and those who came thither to pray with him to the doom of fire, for have they not committed the deadly sin against the sun? Or, Nyleptha, I give thee war, red war. Aye, I say to thee that the path of thy passion shall be marked out by the blazing of thy towns, and watered with the blood of those who cleave to thee. On thy head rests the burden of the deed, and in thy ears ring the groans of the dying, and the cries of the widows, and those who are left fatherless for ever and ever. I tell thee I will tear thee, Nyleptha, the white queen, from thy throne, and that thou shalt be hurled, ay, hurled even from the topmost stair of the great way to the foot thereof, in that thou hast covered the name of the house of him who built it with black shame. And I tell ye, strangers, all save Buguan, whom, because thou didst do me a service, I will save alive, if thou wilt leave these men and follow me. Here poor Good shook his head vigorously and ejaculated, Can't be done, in English. That I will wrap you in sheets of gold and hang you yet alive in chains, from the four golden trumpets of the four angels that fly east and west and north and south from the giddiest pinnacles of the temple, so that ye may be a token and a warning to the land. And as for thee, Incubu, thou shalt die in yet another fashion that I will not tell thee now. She ceased, panting for breath, for her passion shook her like a storm, and a murmur, partly of horror, and partly of admiration, ran through the hall. Then Nyleptha answered calmly and with dignity, Ill would it become my place and dignity, O sister, so to speak as thou hast spoken, and so to threat as thou hast threatened. Yet if thou wilt make war, then I will strive to bear up against thee. For if my hand seems soft, Yet shalt thou find it of iron when it grips thine armies by the throat. Sereus, I fear thee not. 
I weep for that which thou wilt bring upon our people and on thyself. But for myself I say, I fear thee not. Yet thou, whom but yesterday didst strive to win my lover and my lord from me, whom today thou dost call a foreign wolf to be thy lover and thy lord, here there was an immense sensation in the hall. Thou who but last night, as I have learnt, but since thou didst enter here, didst creep like a snake into my sleeping place, I, even by a secret way, and wouldst have foully murdered me, thy sister, as I lay asleep. It is false, it is false, rang out Egon's and a score of other voices. It is not false, said I, producing the broken point of the dagger and holding it up. Where is the haft from which this flew, O Soraeus? It is not false, cried Good, determined at last to act like a loyal man. I took the Lady of the Night by the White Queen's bed, and on my breast the dagger broke. Who is on my side? cried Soraeus, shaking her silver spear, for she saw that public sympathy was turning against her. "'What, Bougwan, thou comest not?' she said, addressing Good, who was standing close to her in a low, concentrated voice. "'Thou pale-souled fool, for a reward thou shalt eat out thy heart with love of me, and not be satisfied, and thou mightest have been my husband and a king.' At least I hold thee in chains that cannot be broken. War, 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 she cried. Here with my hand upon the sacred stone that shall endure, so runs the prophecy. Till the Zuvendi set their necks beneath an alien yoke, I declare war to the end. Who follows Sereus of the night to victory and honor? Instantly the whole concourse began to break up in indescribable confusion. Many present hastened to throw in their lot with the Lady of the Night, but some came from her following to us. Amongst the former was an under-officer of Nyleptha's own guard, who suddenly turned and made a run for the doorway through which Sereus's people were already passing. Umslopogas, who was present, and had taken the whole scene in, seeing with admirable presence of mind that if this soldier got away others would follow his example, seized the man, who drew his sword and struck at him. Thereon the Zulu sprang back with a wild shout, and avoiding the sword cuts began to peck at his foe with his terrible axe, till in a few seconds the man's fate overtook him, and he fell with a clash heavily and quite dead upon the marble floor. This was the first blood spilt in the war. "'Shut the gates!' I shouted, thinking that we might perhaps catch Sereus so, and not being troubled with the idea of committing sacrilege. But the order came too late. Her guards were already passing through them, and in another minute the streets echoed with the furious galloping of horses and the rolling of her chariots. So, drawing half the people after her, Sereus was soon passing like a whirlwind through the frowning city on her road to her headquarters at Marstuna, 
a fortress situated a hundred and thirty miles to the north of Milosis. And after that the city was alive with the endless tramp of regiments and preparations for the gathering war, and old Umslopogaas once more began to sit in the sunshine and go through a show of sharpening in Kosikas's razor edge. End of chapter 18